Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Dr. Robert Sprinson. He is the president and chairman of the board for the Virtual Center for Velocardiofacial Syndrome. He has dedicated his life to studying genetics, and today we are going to see his compassion and dedication to fixing bodies and faces. Robert, welcome. I hear that there is a syndrome named after you. Well, actually, there are four. There's one in particular that's more common than the others, but there are four different syndromes that uh, bear my name. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) that comes with age, I suppose. (laughs) Let's dive into that. I became interested in genetics in uh, 1974. And uh, in 1974, there wasn't a specific field then called clinical genetics that had board certifications and credentialing by the AMA. It was a pretty wide open field so that we had physicians and dentists and research scientists and a lot of other people joining into the field. And we used to meet annually in the meetings of the uh, March of Dimes that they, they used to hold an annual meeting back then. There were a couple of societies that formed, but it was still a relatively small number of people from the US and a few in Europe um, and elsewhere. And at that point in time, I was the head of a craniofacial center at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. And Montefiore is a very, very large hospital, um, really the only major uh, teaching hospital for 2 million people in the Bronx. And we used to see a very large number of children and adults, but mostly children with unusual presentations, uh, birth defects uh, is what most people uh, were calling them in those days. Now we call them congenital anomalies. But the number of cases that I saw were right around five to 600 new cases a year at a craniofacial center because craniofacial birth defects at that time were so common. The study of those from a genetic point of view is really in its infancy. And as a result, I had access to a a fairly large number of people in the U.S. who may had made big names for themselves, published a lot, had published compendiums of disorders and so on. And I became very well acquainted with all of them. One of them, David Smith, who at that time was publishing the major compendium for birth defects, invited me to come out and join him for a few weeks in Seattle, uh, spent some time studying with him. From that time forward, uh, I was just hooked on this because it was a little bit different than what I had been doing up until that time. I hired a genetic counselor from the first graduating class of genetic counselors at Sarah Lawrence College. We started studying all of the cases, both in terms of modes of inheritance, the types of abnormalities they had, uh, the groupings of abnormalities they had. And then in 1978, I published a paper describing 12 cases of a disorder, which I thought at the time was a unique genetic syndrome. The title was a new syndrome involving learning disabilities, cleft palate, and typical face. I mean, it received some attention, not a huge amount, but because David Smith was my mentor at the time, 
in his next version of the compendium, he called this new syndrome Sprinson syndrome. I called it velocardiofacial syndrome. Uh, velo meaning is the soft palate. So that was cleft in many of these cases. Cardio because they have a high frequency of congenital heart disease and facial because the kids all looked alike. Not terribly abnormal at all, but if they were all lined up, they would look like you know siblings. Um, that's how similar they were. It actually has multiple other names too, <laughs> because I, when I thought I was really the original guy who described it, I really wasn't. It was first described by a Czechoslovakian surgeon in Prague in the 1950s, 1954. Her name was Eva Sedlachkova. So in Czechoslovakia, they still call it Sedlachkova syndrome. And a pediatric endocrinologist in Philadelphia, Angelo DeGeorge, he had described a number of cases in 1968, and it was clearly the same disorder. So some people call it DeGeorge syndrome. Now, some people call it because it has a distinct chromosome location as 22Q11 deletion syndrome, because there's a deletion of 40 genes from one copy of chromosome 22. I'm not crazy about the notion of having a disease named after me. <laughs> yeah, so tell me how you got into genetics. The thing that prompted it was I told you I hired this genetic counselor. Her name was Rosalie Goldberg from right after she had graduated from Sarah Lawrence. Sarah Lawrence was so thrilled that I had actually hired the very first genetic counselor out of their program that they decided to use us as a training platform for their master's students in genetic counseling. So we had a constant parade of individuals coming in who had an interest in, in uh, genetics. And so I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to bring David Smith you know, to Montefiore and have him give a lecture. And he blew everybody away. I mean, he was, a, he was a very great orator. He was very humble. He was a pediatrician by training, but he was very, very clear on what he knew. And he was able to teach it extremely well. So people knew me. Um, I was elected to the presidency of the Society for Craniofacial Genetics in 1983, I think it was. And so I also had administrative positions in the, in the field of genetics. What are your thoughts about 23andMe? That's obviously a business. I think that they've taken advantage of the great interest in heritage and lineage because they're not the only ones uh, doing it now. Of course, most of the organizations, you know, like the Mormon Church and others who explore heritage are, are doing exactly the same thing. It's just 23 and me, you know, they're charging for it and, you know, making money on in the process. It's not that exact as you would think, you know, in terms of locating your background. And it's, I don't think that too many people think of it as a strong science, you know, rather than as something interesting for people to look at. Have you done any sort of genetic testing yourself? On me? No. Yeah. <laughs> I know where I came from. <laughs> My father was born in a shtetl in Ukraine, in Medjibuzh. And if you, you probably know Medjibuzh, that's where the Balshemto was born. We know our lineage actually going back to the Spanish Inquisition, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, my grandma talks about that too. <laughs> well, my name Sprinson is obviously not particularly Ukrainian or Russian. At that time, it was part of the Russian Empire. The name we found out doing uh, genealogical uh, searches traces back to post-Moorish uh, invasion of uh, Spain. Family was from uh, Seville and Toledo in that area. The family name became Esperanza. Oh, interesting. But then they were kicked out during the Inquisition. 
went to Venice ghetto, kicked out, went north into Bavaria, name became Germanicized, and the rest is history. What was your childhood like? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn in a very nice, tight family. My father's one of six children, and uh, they all lived in uh, Brooklyn, close to or in uh, Midwood on Ocean Parkway. That was very nice. And then finally, we moved to what in those days was called the country. And it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, it was a good time. 1950s, you know, growing up is a good time to grow up. Were your parents interested in science or genetics? My mother was. She was an avid reader, and she had been a volunteer nurse during World War II. My father was in textiles, <laughs> so he was also an avid reader, and he was very interested in science, but his mind was a business mind, not, not a uh, scientific one. How did you like pick this specialty of something that applies to many women across the world and across the U.S.? Like this is much more common than I realized. For women in particular, if they're thinking of having children, the prenatal testing that's done today is very sophisticated. And that's a whole different branch of genetics. That's prenatal genetics. The field I'm in, most people would call clinical genetics. We used to call this field dysmorphology, meaning the study of people who are unusual or dysmorphic. Before that, it was known as teratology. The word teratos in Greek means monster. So it was adopted for children who were very bizarre are and the label was attached. Getting involved was easy because first of all, there wasn't anybody else who was really interested in most places. I mean, I did find it, but I think it found me also. Did you personally know anyone who had this? Who had what? Dysmorphia? Or... Oh, sure. Everybody does. Approximately 4% of the general population. So if you know yeah. somebody with Down syndrome, you know it. Can you detect this pretty early on? More like... and more is being detected through multiple different approaches. The laboratory tests that are done now for prenatal screening are very, very sophisticated. They don't even necessarily have to do either chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis these days if there is a major anomaly. Some of them are detected by drawing maternal blood that can find proteins in the, the maternal blood stream that indicate the potential of a possible problem with the fetus. 4D ultrasound gives you some really excellent pictures of the fetus these days, albeit maybe too late, you know, relative to people making decisions, life and death decisions for the fetus. But I think that the number of approaches to identifying significant problems are so numerous that they don't miss too much if you're being very careful and watching. I think the issue becomes that obviously there's more sophisticated genetics going on in prenatal centers and large teaching hospitals and probably large cities. So, I mean, obviously in Chicago, it would not be a problem at all. In New York, it's not a problem, Los Angeles and so on. But in less populated areas or more remote areas, it's probably less likely that you'll have access. How has this discovery impacted the children and the families? It's an interesting question. I think there are so many different factors that relate to the decisions that people have to make during uh, pregnancy that it's really very, very complicated. It's not just science. It's morality, it's religion, it's attitudes, it's about the number of children you have, whether or not you have other children who have some problems. It takes a really intense 
counseling by prenatal genetic counselors, you know, to try to explain things in a way that is satisfying to the patient, but at the same time, delivering the truth, whether it's not so bad or really terrible. I don't know that I would have the stomach to do that every day because I think it's a very difficult thing, especially in first pregnancies. You know, I think that the ability to deliver information without putting a emotional, you know, tag on it, I think is very, very difficult. I would definitely have a hard time with that too. Is there treatment? Of course. There are lots and lots of treatments for lots of disorders. I don't even think we scratched the surface yet, even though we have so many different possible treatments. But here's what I'll tell you, that in the old days, when I started, (laughs) the old days being the 1970s, when the clinicians came out, diagnosis was made by sight and examination. You had to have a brain that could put patterns together in a way that made you say, well, you know, that's frackle-snackle-dackle syndrome, and that one's dackle-snackle-frackle syndrome, or whatever it is based on the pattern and, and how you recognize the gestalt of the look of a particular syndrome, or by analyzing the types of abnormalities that the baby has, and what is the probability that those things occurring together make up a particular syndrome. In those days, genetics, laboratory genetics was at its very beginnings. I mean, we didn't know how many chromosomes humans had for sure until the mid-1950s. But then in the 1980s, molecular genetics techniques came into play. And now we can not only see individual genes, but we can see portions of individual genes, know how many there are, and we have full knowledge of the entire human genome. If people were paying attention about 15 years ago about the Human Genome Project closed because they had done what their mission was, which was to decode the entire human genome, and they finished three years early. The speed with which scientists have really taken off. My first meeting of the American Society of Human Genetics in 1981, I think. And at that time, the meeting had maybe at the most 400 people. The last meeting prior to COVID had over 16,000 people. I would say that's an increase in interest. You bet. (laughs) And the field has spread from clinicians who uh, used to diagnose by sight to now scientists who diagnose in the laboratory and also genetic counselors and people who do prenatal genetics and so on. Have you seen miracles? Oh, sure. It's what keeps me going right now. Look, I'm, I'm going to be 75 years old in, in July. I retired from active practice at the age of 67. I had new grandchildren. I wanted to spend time with my grandchildren. When I retired, I decided to start a kind of an online consulting program for what used to be called Sprinson syndrome, what we now call VCFS or velocardiofacial syndrome. I had um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of old patients. I didn't want to leave them, you know, and I wanted to keep in touch with them. And I wanted to keep up with the science. COVID made us all stay and sit in front of a computer. But I've been doing that for nine years now (laughs) because all of the consultations we do are over video conferences. And we see patients from literally every place in the world. We're now following almost 1,500 patients. And as a result, we have been able to gain a critical mass of a huge number of patients where we can analyze their DNA and take a look not only at what makes them tick, but also how to make the ticking correct. How do you make the ticking correct? 
Well, there's some new technology out there these days that is very exciting. One of the major issues with velocardiofacial syndrome that I didn't originally describe in 1978 is a very, very high frequency of uh, psychiatric disorders. Approximately 35 to 40% of people with this syndrome become psychotic. And that is therefore the most prominent genetic cause of psychosis, even more so than identical twins. That has become our major emphasis now, because even though many of these kids are born with severe congenital heart disease, with severe scoliosis that might require surgery, uh, with their cleft palate that might require surgery to, to resolve their speech issues, learning disabilities, immune disorders, which has come into play a lot this past year with COVID. Altogether, we know of 200 separate anomalies that can occur in the syndrome. And we've done for a long time that that happens because there are 20 genes missing from one copy of chromosome 22. That's a lot of information in genetic terms. We think that we isolated the gene that's largely responsible for the basis of the psychosis. In our case, what we want to be able to do is to look at the brains of our patients. But how do you look at a brain without harming somebody under a microscope, right? But now we can take their blood, we can harvest the monocytes, we can turn them into stem cells, we can take the stem cells and turn them into neurons. And those neurons will be exact copies of the neurons in the brains of our patients. So we can see what happens to those neurons over time. Not only can we see what happens to them over time, we can actually accelerate time so that they age faster. And then... Once we have that information, if you take those stem cells and you put them together in a Petri dish, they actually coagulate and form what we call in the lab a mini brain, and the cells organize themselves just as they would in the human brain. So we can measure electrical activity, we can see interconnections between cells, and we can manufacture hundreds or thousands of these organoids in relatively short period of time. This is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. So it took me a long time to get there. <laughs> but uh, I, I think this is really the pinnacle. And I don't want to give up on this until you know, we find that, quote, cure. Wow. So this could be your life's work, huh? Yeah. And as we're doing it for our patients, for the VCFS patients, people are doing this for other diseases as well. I mean, people should be very, very optimistic about their healthcare in the future. You also mentioned identical twins. Prior to this time, the one genetic link that they had to schizophrenia, for example, is that there was an increased frequency of schizophrenia in identical twins. So if one twin had it, you would expect the other to have it as well. But the frequency of that was not that high. I mean, it was, I think, somewhere 26%, something like that. I can't remember the exact statistic. But in our syndrome patients with velocardiofacial syndrome, it's 35 to 40% of them that are developing psychosis, which is you know, much higher than what you see in identical twins. We know that the frequency of this genetic mutation, of this deletion of 40 genes, happens in one out of every 960 established pregnancies. That's more common than the mutation that causes Down syndrome, which is an extra chromosome 21. The frequency in the population of Down syndrome is calculated to be about 1 in 1,500, whereas we think that VCFS is probably about 1 in 1,200 or so. What would you tell a parent that discovers that their child has this? First of all, I know of a large group of adults with VCFS who are doing just great. 
I don't know what percentage of the population that is, but it's big enough so that I know a few hundred of these people. The other thing that's interesting is that our treatments for most of the medical conditions in the syndrome, actually, I think pretty much all of the medical conditions are very effective. So the loss of life, the loss of growth and so on in these kids is very, very treatable. Their major problem then, after they reach uh, teen years and they're in school and all of the medical things have been managed correctly, is their behavior. Is their essentially 100% of people with this syndrome have severely elevated anxiety. I recruited 20 people to join me in this online venture. They represent all of the different disciplines that we require to both evaluate and counsel people who have the syndrome. So I have a psychiatrist, I have a psychologist, I have a pediatrician, a geneticist, myself, a speech pathologist, an audiologist, you name it, we we have that person on our staff. The difference is if you try to assemble a team like that in a hospital, you have no control over the quality of the people you're recruiting, except that they have to work at the hospital. We're a center without walls. So we, we have the team that we want, but every single person on that team is somebody who knows a lot about this syndrome. About a third of them are my former residents, and they know everything about this syndrome in their field. You said that you know a lot of adults that have the syndrome. Three of them have written books. One patient in uh, the U.S., one in Australia, in the United Kingdom. Did you read them? I wrote the forwards for them. Wow. I've learned a lot from the patients. I'll tell you a story. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Quinn Bradley. Have have you heard of him? All right. Quinn doesn't mind that that I mention him because he's been very public about the fact that he has the syndrome. Okay. And he's the son of two very, very well-known journalists, Ben Bradley and his mother, Sally Quinn. And they've been very public about this as well. The story that Quinn has, he's he's quite a success. He has his own business. He's, He's doing well. He wrote a book about this. The person who was working with Quinn on the book came and interviewed me and did a chapter of speaking with me and, and asking me questions. And I told him a story. That's a true story. When I was, oh, this was 15 years ago, I think, I was in Australia speaking at a meeting. They have a large family support group. And so there was a meeting and there were about 300 people at the meeting, uh, some professionals, a lot of uh, parents and families, and a fair number of adults with the syndrome. After the lecture, as I usually do, I usually talk more than I need to, and I was running over time. So I said, listen, I would have liked to have taken a lot of questions, but I'll tell you what, I'll stay here as long as you need and come up and ask me personally whatever questions you have. I'm happy to answer them. Quite a few people came up and there was one young lady. She looked like she was in her early 20s. And I knew she had the syndrome. I could tell by by looking at her. And uh, she kept going to the end of the line. You know, even when more people came on behind her, she would walk behind them and she'd go back to the end of the line. And her mother was standing with her, but about five feet back. Finally, she was the only one left. She came up and it was it was around 6.30 at that point. And, I, and so she apologized before she started. I, you know, I'm sorry to take up more of your time. You must be tired. I said, no, no, please. You know, you, you came to see me. I'm happy to stay. She said, well, I'd like to tell you a story, you know, about myself. I didn't get the diagnosis of velocardiofacial syndrome until I was 19. And it was after she had left high school. And she said she lived in the outback with her mother in a very small town of about a thousand people. Her mother was a seamstress, the only seamstress in town. And when she was in school, she had a horrendous 
time. I mean, she was either just barely passing or failing some of her classes. And in Australia at the time, the entry into university was like in the UK. You have to take an entrance exam. She knew that she graduated from high school by the skin of her teeth, and she knew that she would not pass the entrance exam. So she wasn't going to be going on for any additional education. And so she was really bereft. I mean, she had no idea, and she really became quite depressed. She said, good chance happened, and the veterinarian in town was looking for somebody for part-time help, uh, just as a vet's assistant in the office. She went to work two days a week, and she found out within the first week she loved this job. And as a result, she was the first one there in the morning and the last one out the door at night. The vet loved her. So he asked her if she would stay on and take a full-time job, and she did. And she'd been working there for a couple of years now. And she said, well, you know, I'm really doing well. I, I have enough money to rent myself an apartment and I bought an old car. She then looks at me and she says, I hope you don't mind that I took up so much of your time. I just wanted to let you know I'm happy. It changed my view of what I was doing as a doctor, you know, for patients, because, you know, you try to fix everything and some things can't be fixed. So what is it that you want to do for somebody who has a problem? You want to make them happy. In fact, I have four grandchildren. I don't know what they're going to do when they get older. I do know what I want them to be. I want them to be happy. I wanted my kids to be happy. Neither of my kids have anything whatsoever to do with science, <laughs> but they're happy. Both. Do they tell you? Well, first of all, if I can't figure out that they're happy, I'm in big trouble. But yes, they do. I want them to be as happy as I am in my life. And when she said that to me, that was my learning moment. I changed everything I did after that. Have you helped other patients find happiness? When I was in the Bronx, we used to get a lot of referrals from Williamsburg or Borough Park in Brooklyn, and they were usually referred by their Rebbe to come and see us. They didn't let us treat them. They just, they just wanted another opinion. Primarily, I think what was happening was that they were looking for information about finding a shidduch, you know, and, and I think they wanted to understand as much as possible about what the problem was that afflicted their child. And so we would tell them, we understood that. That is fascinating. Yeah, it happens. I have no problem with it, by the way. But that's interesting that they came to you before they match made. That happens. And questions like that happen too. I think if you're looking out towards the future of your child, the information now is going to be more sophisticated because you're going to be telling people what the chances are of a recurrence of the problem in offspring. So genetics plays the absolute role. The ability for genetics to play a positive role in that respect, I think it's a good thing. I'd be much unhappier if they didn't want the information. A lot of Rebbies know a lot of science, you know. It's, <laughs> they, they study this. They understand what's going on. They, but they want a professional to give them, you know, the absolute emiss, you know. All right. Well, what is next for you? This project that I'm working on now with the scientists and the psychiatrists of Columbia is my main focus right now. Once we finish, the next step, I think, will be a clinical trial. Oh, wow. Okay. And how can people connect with you? If they can't find me on the internet, they're not trying. <laughs> the challenge is spelling my last name correctly. <laughs> and saying it correctly. <laughs> Listen, if you can't say it, you're in trouble too. Okay. <laughs> is there anything you would like to ask my dad? Daddy, what do you think about Rena and what she's doing? <laughs>
Ooh, okay. I like it. Well, it was awesome connecting with you and I will send you the episode when it's ready to air. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. What a fascinating uh, conversation. And what's ironic about the conversation is that I just listened a few hours ago to Jennifer Dudna, who won the Nobel Prize of Chemistry for genetic. It's called CRISP-PR, where she was studying the molecules of, or the RNA of molecules, where you're able to use that almost surgically to repair DNA that could have things either wrong with them or are missing things where you can add to it. I've always had a fascination with genetic engineering myself. And when I graduated from high school, which is when Robert was realizing that genetics was going to be his cup of tea in 1974, that was something that I was thinking about pursuing in college myself in 1974. I think Jennifer mentioned that she got a job working for Genentech where she worked only for a couple of months and to do research or to work on a pipeline of products for that, that company versus doing research and studying and being able to brainstorm the thoughts of ideas at Berkeley, where she ended up going back to Berkeley. And then, of course, as you know, won the Nobel Prize in science, where she felt like she could do better in a, an environment of learning and teaching versus the private sector. And it seems that Robert is doing the same thing, where he's fascinated in helping people and being able to study and research and brainstorm with many different scientists all across the globe and ascertaining and fixing disorders to better the world and the better people versus necessarily measuring it against dollars and cents. How do you like that he stayed until the very end of his presentation to take every last question? It goes to show you the type of patience and understanding that people have or the consideration of others. It's called being humble and not being a braggart. It's someone that really is interested in not only giving you his point of view, but is open to listening to others and asking questions that he wants answered. He feels also that if you have questions, he wants to be there and answer them as well. And that's how all people should be. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Better Call Daddy.